Hi everyone, welcome to Cactus Adventures Podcast, your weekly show on all things travel, culture, food, society, with your hosts Lee, Mike D, Mike. This week, Lee is talking about, can you describe it to us, Lee? I thought I would, that we would talk about uh, some of the negative effects of tourism that uh, we've experienced around the world and back home in New Zealand as well. So I've got a story for you guys from um, a place called Humpy in India. Let's do it. So I'll start off with just a little bit of background. Um, actually, Mike, have you, you've been to India before. Have you ever been down south to Karnataka, to Humpy? No, I haven't. I've been sort of like other places, but I haven't been like, I think I've been to Tamil Nadu. That's like the sort of the only area down south I've been to. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, that's beautiful there. Mm. Um, so I'll give you a little bit of background about Humpy. It's some pretty impressive ruins. Um, it's been a UNESCO World Heritage status since I think about 1986. Uh, they've found some stuff there at site excavations, you know, that show it to be like occupied since the second century. So it's basically been a hub of some kind for ancient peoples for a very, very long time. Um, Around the 10th century, it became a center of religious and educational importance. So around that time, this one temple was built there. And that temple's actually been used continuously since then for religious purposes uh, the whole way up until today. So it's still actually an active uh, Hindu temple today. So it's basically like a thousand years of continuous use of yeah. like as, a, yeah. as a Hindu temple. Pretty amazing. Pretty much. Yeah, it's really incredible. Um, so it's, it's really, really beautiful. Most of it is, you know, Dravidian style. So there's lots of uh, beautiful reliefs and statues and the um, worksmanship is absolutely amazing. So anyway, around the 14th century, uh, following the collapse of the previous kingdom that was there, this uh, Vijayanagara empire was born and it actually ruled in that area for more than 200 years so it's known as um one of the the great ancient hindu empires of south india um in 1500 ce it was the world's largest medieval city uh, after beijing so the second largest medieval city in the world how many people do you know i'm not sure i'm not sure actually how many people it was the capital of the empire itself so the empire itself was spanning you know a large portion of the state karnataka yeah. um i'm not actually sure how many people live there but probably in the millions though i mean in the second yeah, largest it was, city it was a big big city yeah definitely um so it was sacked and looted in 1565 ce uh, by like the, the Muslim sultanates who kind of made a coalition and waged war against the Vijayanagara empire. And they ended up burning it and looting it after the war. And then it was abandoned until sort of modern history, early 1800s when um, uh, British uh, anthropologists and archeologists started coming there and kind of rediscovering the ruins and, and that. So it lay abandoned for a very, very long time as well. How many years, sorry, how many, how many years was that? Abandoned? Like since, since like 1565 CE. Right, okay. So like 400 years or something. Or mm. maybe 350 years, something like that. Mm. Um, so at the, 
at the location around Humpy, it's sort of like a bunch of small villages, like the closest city is a few kilometers away. So it's basically this kind of like semi-rural area covering about 42 square kilometers. And there's something like more than 1,600 surviving remains, um, which is all kinds of stuff. There's like, there's temples, there's these complex forts, um, castles, shrines, royal complexes. There's like giant, uh, there's these giant baths for the queens, um, amazing pillared halls, like um, water structures. They, they rival like Roman aqueduct. That's really incredible stuff. They wow. even have these huge elephant stables there. Elephant so, stables. Yeah, it's like just this massive building, man. It's just mind-boggling how they even made this stuff. And it's all carved from the local rocks. So all of these ruins are sort of scattered in this really almost like, how do you explain it? Like a moon-like landscape. It's <laughs> like something out of this world. It's kind of deserty. Um, there's a fair bit of like plants and stuff, but it's all kind of low shrubby kind of stuff. And it's these hills and all the hills have got covered with um, these giant boulders that are like marbles, like giant marbles. They're almost perfectly round, some of them, and they're all kind of precariously sitting on top of each other. It's some kind of weird geological formation that's not found in too many other places. So it's this really eerie landscape. Like you, you, you feel like a moon when you go there, and then there's these all these ancient ruins that are just absolutely mind-boggling as well. That's pretty awesome, man. So one of the main, um, yeah, yeah. One of the main uh, attractions amongst the ruins is the Virupaksha Temple. That's the one I told you about before, which has been in continuous use since uh, since the 11th century up until today, maybe even longer. So that's quite a cool uh, temple to go see. You've got the Mandapa and the stone temples. Um, there's this huge stone chariot. Um, there's uh, this uh, one really cool hall that we went to called Vitala Temple. And it's got these 56 carved stone beams uh, and they're all slightly different length diameter. So they make different musical notes when you hit them. What? So you could like walk through there and yeah, you could actually walk through there and like hit these ancient columns and they make it slightly different sound like boom, 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 you know, kind of thing. Um, now that's actually been blocked off in the last couple of years, but we got to go there a few years back, uh, which was cool. Um, so I guess that's kind of a funny thing about like used to something like that being surrounded by fences and you're not allowed to take flash photography of the mosaics and stuff like this. But in Humpy, actually everything is just like open. You can go and walk all over everything. You don't even have to pay to get into most things. I think there's like three areas that you pay, you know, something like 20 bucks will get, get you into all three of them for like a few days or something like that. Right. So most stuff you can just go to look at and there's not only no one there, but you can walk, all over and around and inside of these ancient structures. Sounds pretty cool. Um, and you went there, like how long ago, did, when did you go there? I went there the first time was, uh, our first trip to India was in 2016. 
Um, and then the next time we went there was 2019. And both times we went down to Humpy. Yeah, both times we went to Humpy. So the first time we went there, we kind of fell in love with it and we spent like three weeks there or something and we went and did stuff every day. Like we went and climbed hills and looked at ruins every day. Three weeks. And we still did, yeah, for three weeks. And we still didn't get to like really see everything. So, I mean, you could spend a year or more there going to see a different site every single day and you'd still have not seen all of it. And so what happened the second time that you went there? So the second time, like we were sort of supposed to be doing a trip of the South um, and going all the way down to Tamil Nadu and then coming up the East coast through Pondicherry and stuff like that. But um, we ended up running into a bit of trouble because we're in like uh, this place called Madikeri, which is really beautiful. It's in the cool, cool ranges. Um, we're surrounded by coffee plantations and cardamom plantations and it's like rich jungle and stuff, you know, and we're planning our trip down south and we're looking at the little towns that we're going to visit next and there was flooding and landslides going on in those towns we'd come just at the end of the monsoon season and the monsoon had gone on for longer and been heavier than we um than anybody had planned when when does it when does when does this uh the monsoon season run for in india monsoon season is like from uh like starts in like September and it can go all the way through to like February, but it's not supposed to be that long. It's supposed to be sort of like until December. Right. And, and does so, the area suffer from drought or is it? Yeah, not, not where we were further South, but in Hampi it does. It's basically like, you know, they get like seven to eight months of desert dry weather yeah. and then they get, smashed by rain yeah completely smashed by rain except this time it went on for five months instead of two or three months so you guys are there in like what january february or something like that that yeah we we got there just after uh just after new years we were there january okay so what happened next so you know we went there we decided we'd go back there um we got there at the end of the peak tourism season so it was really chill there weren't too many tourists hanging around uh so there's a lot less of like the chance parties and stuff like that more hardcore travelers and hikers and climbers and and stuff humpy itself is famous um climbing location climbers from all over the world go there for like uh what's the free climbing stuff called bouldering you no idea <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, like world yeah 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 bouldering uh, you have bouldering in similar landscapes, like yeah. Um, yeah. the limestone of Castle Hill. Is uh, there's a lot of bouldering there? Yeah. Okay. So, so you kind of got more of those types of travellers going there at that time of the year, which is really nice. Um, there's a bit less of the party crowd. So we get we get into Humpy and we go down to the river. Uh, when you arrive, you get to that big temple I told you about before, the Virupaksha temple. And if there's not too many tourists hanging around, it kind of like feels like you're, you've been transported in time, like you're just surrounded by ancient shit. Um, and there's these steps down to the river. So we go down the steps to the river and there's this little boat that takes you across to what they call 
uh, Hippie Island or Humpy Island. So this is basically like, it's not even really an island. It's connected to the mainland, but it's just like a bit of land in the middle of the river. So you cross one bit of the river, you're on the island, you walk across the island. It's maybe a 10 minute walk. And then you jump the river again and you're back on the other side. Um, so it's just kind of like this funny bit of land in the middle, which when the river is really high, it's actually separated completely um, from land. But most of the year it's accessible how um, how how wide is the is the river the river is maybe like at this point it's probably maybe like even 100 meters wide maybe even a bit bit more it's okay. quite a big river on the either side is, or? normally it doesn't it doesn't have much water running in it it's just a little trickle of water. So the river bed is really wide, but you can walk across the whole thing and then just step over the creek. You know what I mean? Okay. So um, like, would, you, would you say it's uh, prone to flooding, Lee? Even, even yeah, without the human involvement? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. They just don't normally expect that much rain. I have a snake. Okay. Yeah, so yeah, tell us about it, mate. We get to the other side. We get onto Humpy Island. Um, this is where all the guest houses, backpackers, little shops selling king size papers and um, Snickers bars, all the stuff that caters for the white tourists basically is all here. Um, all the restaurants serve the three eyes, Indian, Italian, and Israeli food, which you can always find at any place in India that's mentioned in the Lonely Planet Guide. There'll always be a restaurant selling Indian, Italian, and Israeli. So we met up with an old friend of ours that we'd met on the last trip. You know, we just sent him a message and, caught up with them on the island at a restaurant uh, and we hired a scooter from him. We chucked our bags on the scooter and we just did a drive around the island and had a look at stuff, you know, and kind of looking at what was different from the last time we were here. And then we went on to a little village just a few kilometers down the road off the island called Hanuman Hali. So Hanuman Hali is really, really picturesque, like rural Indian village. It's really basic. There's like, three little dabas or restaurants that are just run out in front of locals homes and you know as soon as we drove in there we recognized a couple of familiar faces of people that we'd we'd already met before who were still living there um and so we take uh we take a room down really close to the river this place called hanuman guest house and um he's right alongside the river so it's off the island, but it's facing the island on the other side. And he kind of had this really basic property that was almost like a little farm. Like there's like chickens and cats and dogs running around everywhere. And um, it's really private and relaxed. Um, so we settled in there. We have a little room that's like just like a shack, basically with a mosquito net and a fan. Um, and we're hanging out for a couple of days and we're hearing from people that the, uh, the river is due to flood. So every year when the dam water gets too high because of the rainfall in the south, they let out a little bit of water. They open some of the floodgates uh, in the dam and let out some of the water. And they do this every year normally. But so far this year, there wasn't so much as a trickle despite all of the heavy rain that was going on down south. So the locals were kind of talking about it like, yeah, it must be coming soon, you know, like 
there's there's all this rain happening down south. They haven't opened the floodgates yet, so they're kind of expecting it. You know what I mean? So what's the story? That they're basically during the monsoon season, it rains sort of up upstream a little bit, upriver, and yeah. it's caught by a dam, and then they control this dam when there's an excess of water, and they they like they consciously just allow a little bit of water through so that the dam doesn't overflow. Is that right? That's exactly right. So the dam gets like close to capacity or, or close to its danger levels. And then they're like, okay, we'll open one of the floodgate for 24 hours and we'll let out a steady stream of water. So the dam isn't too full. And they don't, and like they, 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 they allow the, they let the locals know that like the river's going to be opened up. Very good question. It's kind of a bit contentious. Like some people are, are, are let known and others aren't, you know, there's like various levels of communication. And the thing is in India, it's like, if you know a guy who works for the local government or something, then you're going to get a warning. But if you don't, then maybe you just won't hear about it until your neighbor hears about it and tells you by word of mouth, you know, right. there's okay. no, not a lot of organized communication going on right um, and so what happens next like you think <laughs> you guys you guys are staying at this thing there's like local yes. rumor that maybe this is the floodgates gonna open at this point by the yep. way the river itself is only a trickle right you said you can like literally yep. hop across it but like exactly right you could walk across to the island and and it's nothing it's but it has the capacity well the riverbank itself is up to up to 100 meters wide so we can yeah. imagine the difference between like, you know, dry times where there is nothing and you can literally like hop across the river to monsoon times where there's a hundred meters, a hundred meter yeah, width. That's river. right. Okay. That's right. And I imagine that's how it used to be back in the day before they built the dam Yeah. Right. and probably a lot of agricultural uh, stuff in the area, you know, had, had a massive uh, problem with, um, that massive river suddenly being reduced to just a trickle for most of the year. Is that is that why um, the the previous cities were abandoned, Lee? Like, do do they know why why it ended up? They think the they think that mostly it was to do with war, with the city being ransacked, and then the people who conquered the area didn't want to resettle there. Uh, I think that's the main reason, but um, yeah, that's definitely a good point that you got there. So what happens next, Lee? So, all right. So we're staying at old mate's place. It's really chill. He's like, makes us really nice coffee in the morning and stuff. Um, the locals are telling us that the flood was coming and someone had heard that like it was going to happen that weekend. So we were kind of like getting ready for it. And there was like, you know, whispers of, of maybe it was going to happen over the weekend, but nobody really knew exactly when. Um, the locals had told us to like make sure that if we had cars or uh, motorbikes that we didn't leave them on the island because we wouldn't be able to get them back over to the main road. So everybody just like moved their cars over, parked it on the main road and come back to the island. That's where all the backpacker hangouts are. You know, that's like you can get cold beer and, and, and a meal and sit down and that's where it's all happening. And we'll walk around the little compound of the guest house. We notice there's like no one around. So we go out to the dirt road and look over the other side of the dirt road is where basically the hill goes down to the river. And that's basically um, the area 
which is like the the high tide mark you know the top of the river would normally meet the dirt road and then the guest house is on the other side of the road and it's a little bit lower than than the dirt road so we go up to the road and we see that everybody's standing out there watching and it turns out that like three o'clock in the morning or something the river the dam gates had been opened and nobody had been told anything and the river had started coming up at like three o'clock in the morning and by the time we woke up like we get up pretty early as well like six o'clock or something we go out there and the river's already climbed up like maybe at least five meters maybe 10 meters in in depth and it's almost up to the dirt road already and this thing went from a trickle to just like a monster in a few hours like it you know it's this huge body of water. It's brown in color. You can't see anything. It's churning and there's bits of debris coming down like trees and plastic bags and stuff. This is ridiculous. You know, nobody knows anything. And the thing is like in India as well, everybody takes it easy until the moment they have to panic. So it's hard to gauge from the locals how much we should be worried about it because they're all like sitting around <laughs> smoking cigarettes drinking tea going like oh the river's coming da, 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 you know and but they're not running around grabbing this stuff so we were just kind of like oh, okay but anyway we ran back to the room and packed our bags just in case so that you know everything's ready to go we can just grab it put it on our backs and run if we need to and that's just like 10 minutes and then 10 minutes later we walk back up to the road and the water's like at the road now. Like it's 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 already where they the guys were standing before. And now people are starting to get a move on just as the water's starting to cover the road. Everybody starts rushing around, grabbing their motorbikes, their scooters, their rickshaws, which are like tuk-tuks, you know? Yeah. Three wheelers. Quick quick question, Lee. Like what well, okay, so you guys are like so there's the main river, there's this little island. But you guys are now you guys are now off the island, right? You guys are on the main the mainland, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. So it's like this: you've got Humpy, the main part of Humpy, where most of the main ruins are, mm. is on side A of the river. Yeah. And on side B of the river, you've got a main road which runs between a couple of larger towns that are both outside of Humpy. Right. And it runs through some of the some of the ruins, some of the lesser ruins, which are on the side B of the river. And that's where we were staying. We were staying on side B of the river in this little village. And uh, the, the island, island itself. Yeah, sorry, the island itself is right in between us. We we look out across the river to the island and the island kind of has one big hill on it. And on the other side of that hill, still on the island, is where all of the guest houses and hotels are. Yeah. located all the backpackery what, kind of stuff. what's the highest point on the island lee what how high would you say it is pretty high we, we went walking up there i can't remember exactly but it was a decent hill it was a decent hill it took us you know maybe an hour to walk up to the top oh okay that's so there was big, decent yeah. high ground but that's the whole uh landscape is like these these crazy big hills but in these massive rocks okay so what happens next all right, so we jog back to the room. Uh, we get our bags ready. We come back to the road. We see the rivers coming up to the road. Everybody starts running around like crazy, rounding up chickens, goats, cows. Um, you know, heavy stuff like fridges and gas bottles were getting chucked onto the back of a tractor so the tractor oh could take it out. Uh, and the, the water's like creeping over the road as this is happening. So 
I run back to the scooter. We had a scooter hide and we run, I run back to the scooter and I thought we could like put our bags on the scooter, just gun it up the dirt road to the village, which is a few meters higher than where the guest house is. The guest house is kind of sitting on the slope that runs down towards the river. And we drive about a hundred meters on this dirt road heading up into the village. And then we had to, cause the water was already on the road and it was about maybe half a meter deep at its lowest point and about 40 meters long stretch of road, probably um, covered in water. So we like turn around, I do a Yui, we turn around, go back to the guest house. I drop off the bags and I drop Ali off and I just gun it back down the dirt road. And when I get to the water, I just hit the accelerator on the scooty and just blast, you know, through it as quick as I can uh, with my feet like up on the dash so that my, my socks don't get wet, you know. Um, <laughs> and I made it through like, I made it through like halfway really easy. Like my feet were getting wet and stuff, but the scooty was going all right. And then I hit like deepest point and the scooter, you know, the exhaust was under the water. So it started to slow down. Engine was spluttering and, you know, I didn't think I would make it, but I just made it somehow to the other side with the engine still running. And I drove the scooty up the hill through the village and I just like parked it at the shop. And then I ran back down with my wet boots I ran back down through this field, like I kind of cut, cut across from the road on diagonal, ran back down this field to the guest house. And by the time I'd parked the scooty and got back down there, the road was pretty much all underwater by now. Wow. So I get back to the guest house, which is like slightly lower than the dirt road. And it's starting to fill up with water and we grab our backpacks and we kind of escape through, uh, the back of the orchard there's like this mango and banana plantation so we like hack our way through there to get back to the village and up to the main road which is on the high side you know and so, we're just like walking down the road and we um just looking for a, a place to like lock our bags up so that we can you know go and watch the action basically <laughs> and so we go to the only uh, guest house on the high side of the road and we check into like a little, little bamboo hut with a mozzie net and PowerPoints and a fan. And then we go back down the road as soon as we lock our bags up to help the guys at the guest house pull all their stuff out. It was maybe like 15 minutes or something. By the time we got back down there, the guest house was completely underwater. What do you mean? Like, like, the, like, what, like how, it was, what do you completely? Like? There was water above the window, the bottom window line the water was above the window in the room that we had woken up in that morning Shit. and then how long, how long did it take for, for to get from that point to <laughs> like 20 30 minutes maximum from it what? being at the road <laughs> and then and then the room that we were staying in was like underwater that's amazing just for the, the for, guest house oh, for the listeners at home then, i just uh i just i need to explain to you Mikey T's face right now. He is just like rolling around and like kind of just disbelief. <laughs> He's it's quite funny. I'm just like, good thing you didn't sleep in that day, bro. Totally, <laughs> man. Totally. And you know, I don't even know the guy that we were staying with was absolutely lovely. And he would have come and woken us up and, you know, told us, hey, it's flooding. But I don't think he would have done that until the water was like at the doorstep. You know what I mean? Right. Like they're just and and he's hauling his fridges and his his whole he had a restaurant in there and stuff he's hauling all that stuff out um so we 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 went over there and helped them and 
um, they basically, you know, within a couple of hours that we were there, they had set up like a little um, um, tent for the whole family to sit under and all the goats and the cows and the chickens and everything is all there. And they're just, they're just grabbing stuff out and chucking it in piles, you know, like the food, the fridges, the clothes, everything, mattresses, all the stuff from the rooms. It's just getting going in a big pile. Um, so yeah, it was totally underwater. There was another guest house next door to it, which was even lower, closer to the river. And we walked past that and we could only see the very tops of uh, the um, guest house huts were poking up out of the water. That's all we could see of them. It's amazing. Um, Completely inundated. So it was really crazy. Really crazy. It was totally inundated. Um, the water was rushing like crazy. You know, it's plastic bottles everywhere. There was um, crazy lizards and snakes and insects were all running away around us, getting away from the floodwaters. We got to kind of watch it watch it go on and we helped a few guys out moving some like hay piles and moving stuff out of people's houses and stuff like that helping the locals out and then the next day uh we woke up early again and we went to have breakfast with a few of the guys from the guest house at another little sort of village restaurant and we're sitting there having breakfast and you know it's super chill whatever we're talking about the crazy shit that happened yesterday with the with the river and stuff and all of a sudden, like, you notice people start to, like, run past or drive past really quickly, which is really weird for a little quiet village. You're like, why is everybody going that way really quickly all of a sudden? And then these Alarm ladies are, like, sleep. running out of the fields, abandoning their work, you know, like, dropping their shovels and, and the rice paddies and they're screaming about their children who are at school and they're, like, running out of the fields, running to the road and starting to run away and everybody is like calling each other and like talking on the phone real <laughs> heated we're just trying to understand what's going on this like chaos is erupting around us um and we saw like this old man like let his cows go free you know like freeing them from the um the plow or whatever cutting them loose and just like chasing them off to the hills um <laughs> and just uh. grabbing what they could and uh running away and then, and then, um, so what, what, what was going on was that, um, somebody had gotten a call from like a relative of theirs who had a little farm down river a little bit. And he had seen a bit of water, like coming into his canal or something, a bit of flood water had come into his farm canal. And so he assumed that like, uh, the dam had broken oh. and he thought that there was just like a wave of terror coming down the valley and so he called his cousin or whatever in the village and said you got to grab the whole family and run to the hills the water's coming da, 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 da. so within like half an hour of this guy's phone call you know everybody in the village had heard one version or another of the story and they were basically just like trying to find everyone in their extended family and running to higher ground as, as soon as they possibly could. Uh, but we didn't know that at the time. It was just like this mass panic and chaos going on around us with the whole village trying to run away because they thought they were going to die. And then just nothing happened. It kind of fizzled out, you know? So, so nothing, there was no water. No, there's nothing. It, the, the water was still rising the whole entire time, but it wasn't like the whole dam had failed or anything. It was still, you know, more or less controlled it later turned out that they had opened up more 
doors of the dam than they should have and they released too much water too late they should have done it more gradually but obviously it's some kind of mismanagement issue well obviously because you shouldn't be like flooding guest houses and stuff it's that's probably not what the the, the <laughs> it was designed for you know they don't really want to be exactly going around destroying right. property exactly right so the whole thing with some of these guest houses right is that with Humpy being such a popular place for so long, um, a lot of these places have sprung up kind of as illegal businesses. Like the people might own the land, but it's supposed to be a, um, uh, it's supposed to be just for living on and farming. It's, it's supposed to be a rural land. It's not supposed to be commercial property. So a lot of these guys have opened up businesses because of all the tourism that goes on in Humpy to try and make better money for themselves and their families and lead better lives. But they're not really supposed to be there. So there's a big issue with, you know, what the, what the local government thinks, how many people live there and how many people actually live there and how many people are there at any one time. And the island, Hippie Island has a big problem with it because they're supposed to have X many hotels and each hotel is supposed to be uh, keep records of how many people are staying there every night and stuff like this. And they don't do that. So the island's now completely cut off and they have to do a helicopter rescue of, of the people that are on the island. We're not sure exactly why they ended up having to do the helicopter rescue. Could have been because there was some like rich kids, rich domestic tourists from uh, Mumbai or from Bangalore who were there just for the weekend as like a getaway from their uni lives and they're on dad's credit card. And then they got trapped there and they couldn't get back to school or get back home. So they called up their rich parents, you know, and said, Hey, can you use your influence to, to get the police, get the military or whatever on board with what's going on there? Cause the, the reaction was a little bit over the top. So we're standing on the side of the road, watching the river raging and these helicopters start coming over these giant uh indian navy helicopters start coming over and they're doing a rescue operation to save um what they believe is about 300 people stuck on the island it turns out there's more like 600 uh foreign and domestic tourists and all the crews of the restaurants and hotels on the island um they had to get out so the locals had fudged the books completely and they weren't keeping the, the correct records uh, of how many people were supposed to be there. Um, so, so we had to watch these helicopters come in and rescue them. So basically, like what happened was that was on the second day or the first day? The second this day. This is on the second day. So you, they'd all been there overnight and unable to get off because like the flood water had come up so high. And what you're kind of saying is like, I mean, if they, I mean, I don't know, but I, I would have assumed that like as fast as the water went up, it wouldn't go down like quite as quickly, but it would go down pretty fast with them yeah that's what we thought as well but it it actually took quite a bit longer because they would keep opening the gates because the the water right. level was already dangerously high at the dam they would close the gate and it would just basically overnight it would get filled up again and they would have to leasing water again right. so it, it did become less of a uh of a flow to the river but it didn't go back down again for almost like a month Wow. Okay. So like a month of just like full on like yeah. thing. And you can't, you couldn't boat off, like boat off the island. 
No, you couldn't. But uh, that didn't stop the locals from trying. Obviously. Yeah. Why? So, why? Why couldn't they do it? Like, I mean, it's going to be a pretty hardcore river, but still not floatable. What? Like, why not? Yeah. Well, they well, they did. Flood, yeah, not that day because of how fast the river was going and all the debris getting washed downstream and stuff like that. Um, but a few days later, they, they started going across. And uh, the biggest hurdle is they just don't have the right gear for it. Like they don't have a fancy rubber dinghy with a strong motor on it. They've got this basket, which is literally woven out of like natural materials and a bit of like black plastic tarp. <laughs> And they, they weave this big basket and they put that on the river and they put you in the basket and then they take you across with a, just a boy who's got a paddle. So a couple of days later, we were watching guys, you know, 10 guys in a boat, no, none of them with life jackets and one of these basket shaped round boats and one boy with one paddle uh, trying to get them across to the other side. So that, that was going on as well. So that's another reason why they had to probably bring in the military to, to do this rescue operation because locals were just going to risk their lives trying to get over anyway. So, um, so Lee, let's, um, let's, let's sort of change tack a little bit. Like what, what do you think? Oh, firstly, Mike, do you have any questions about that story? Cause it's pretty, pretty epic. Like any thoughts or, or whatever. Um, I'm I'm most interested in the 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 reasons why they they uh, fucked up the flooding of of the area. You know, like do you yeah. know why why how why like I we know don't exactly know on. the intricacies of it, but there's definitely a level of mismanagement. There's definitely a level of. Uh, uh, corruption going on and there's all these little things that kind of add up to something like this being mismanaged really really badly and um, you know shit hitting the fan basically when when it goes wrong real quickly um, Lee like was there like did anybody I mean there would have been injuries for sure but did, did anybody die and do you know the extent of the damage that was done Nobody died. Uh, a few guest houses were flattened for sure. Maybe five, six, seven different guest houses at least. Um, a big, big part of the damage, which is hard to measure, is people's agricultural land. So you've got people who live down by the river and they have a little banana plantation and they have a few goats and they have a couple of mango trees and that's their income most of the year when there's not many tourists around. And if they don't run any kind of tourist operation, then that's their entire income. It's just farming, you know? Right. So when you get a flood like this happening, first of all, you have all these rice paddies and banana trees that have just been planted and they get completely, you know, um, knocked out. And then you've got all of these oils and trees up underwater. So, if it's at a time of harvest, obviously all of that fruit has gone completely to waste. Often you have to replace all the trees and stuff like this. So there's, there's big, big damage in very small groups like that, where everybody who has property on the water is going to feel some, some negative impact. That down Yeah, for sure. I mean, would you put it like mainly down to mismanagement? I think that's the biggest part of it. The biggest part is mismanagement. There's this whole part about Humpy as well, where 
because of the businesses being illegal, the government comes in every couple of years and bulldozes some of the businesses so that they can kind of say to UNESCO here, we're, we're, we're taking charge of the situation. We're punishing illegal businesses. We're looking after the, um, the artifacts and ruins so that UNESCO keeps their, their world heritage status there, uh, which is obviously good for the local economy because it brings in lots of tourism. But the way that politics works in India, it's completely corrupt. So we basically had one guy tell us that like his operation, his guest house is illegal and the guest house next to his place is also illegal. And if his neighbor goes to the local bureaucrat or the local police chief and pays him 15,000 rupees, then the next day he will go and pay 16,000 rupees so that when the bulldozers come, they'll tear down his neighbor's place and not his because he paid more, you know? So there's a lot of bakshish going on. There's a lot of corruption. There's a lot of like weird, weird relationships that the locals have with the local government and deals and all this kind of shady stuff going on, which all just adds to it. Like you, you kind of feel the whole time that you're there, that something's going on under the surface, you know, the locals aren't, aren't happy. Uh, Lee, what, mm. um, what you, you said you'd been uh, there before two years ago or yeah. two years before. Um, what were some of the, impacts of of tourism that you noticed even in that short time between when you went there and when you went the second time yeah that's a great question so things i noticed in that short time were like definitely things like trash there was more plastic you know like there was always plastic bottles and stuff lying around but that's only increasing i think part of that is probably to do to do with the mismanagement of land in that area there's a lot of those businesses that run resorts or backpackers aren't supposed to be there so they don't have proper rubbish collection or disposal um some guys get together and run co-ops to run the garbage once a week into one of the biggest cities mm -hmm. where they can like just chuck it at the dump um other people sell the recyclable waste to like old ladies and untouchables whose that's their only source of income basically is collecting recyclables and selling them at collection depots. Um, so that's like, that's a massive, massive part of it. Um, everywhere you go, you see the trash from the guest house. You know, you could be staying in this resort place that's all fancy and upmarket and stuff. But when you look over the fence at the bush next door, you notice that it's full of all the trash of all the people that have ever stayed there. Yeah. It's pretty terrifying. You know, they just, yeah. They just chuck it over and somebody else has to deal with it. Do you think that's a that's a direct result of of tourism, or do you think that's like tourism combined with again mismanagement, or do you think it's mismanagement exacerbated by over tourism? In India, it's definitely a little bit of both, and it probably starts at the at the government level with corruption and mismanagement, funds not being allocated to the right places and not being spent correctly and stuff like that. Where, where you do see positive outcomes is in the villages where they take control of their own stuff. So in one little village, they decided that they want to increase the, the positive tourism there. And they went a long way to create co-op, manage the waste, to um, have a proper system of guides who are allowed to 
take you out and see the ruins, not just the random dude who grabs you off the street, you know, without any certification and can hardly speak English and that sort of thing. So I definitely think a big part of it is mismanagement because everywhere you go in India, you see trash, you know, they they have a big problem with their trash uh, and they have a big problem with water and sanitation. But in the places where there's tourists, funnily enough, you have a big population of people that are coming from countries that know how to deal with trash, but they suddenly start behaving like the locals and chucking their plastic bottles out when they know that there's no way that that plastic has got anywhere to go. So it's, it's both parties that are blame. You know what I mean? Tourists need to be a little bit more aware uh, as well as obviously there's big, big issues that undermine stuff like that in India. And that's just a part of the charm of the place. It's probably never going to change, you know, or it is going to change, but very, very slowly. And um, it's places like Humpy where you could possibly see that change happening a little bit quicker because there's a reason for people to keep the street clean. There's a reason for people to pack their plastic up because tourists see that, you know, they come there, they want a beautiful, serene environment like it looks like on the postcard. They don't want to see all that plastic. My so there's that kind of opportunity there to to get things moving at least in the right direction i mean like hearing about this stuff about like trash and a little bit of over tourism and everything mike you've done like quite a bit of camping around new zealand like do you see any parallels to, or can you kind of do you think there are any parallels between what lee is describing in your experiences through like tourism or like freedom camping in new zealand um well there used to be an issue of people shitting everywhere put it bluntly (laughs) yeah but but now they have self-contained and uh i though i know a lot of them don't use them the fact that they have that sticker on there has sort of changed the culture of of um freedom camping in that way where you might just hold on to find find a more comfortable spot um and you've got issues like in the Milford Sound, which if people don't know, um, parts of a World Heritage Site, a huge chunk is, is a, a national park. And just a, what you'd consider the, the pristine, pure New Zealand environment. But there's uh, research come out this week showing that... that uh, levels of rubbish in the sounds in the fjord um is increasing so you know even in wow, really? like that yeah yeah what do you guys hugely popular in tur- tourism's new zealand's you know largest largest industry or it was before covid <laughs> do you think that um making those new rules to to have people have self-contained um compostable toilets and stuff like that on board do you think that's changed the way that people travel in new zealand or like do as many backpackers still come because it's kind of taken out the cheapest option of traveling around new zealand in a and in, in living in your own car kind of thing um so well while also uh, requiring that whether people use them or not is another matter um a lot of councils have now created designated freedom camping 
areas where there's toilets and perhaps showers and somewhere to cook your food and like everyone just parks up their vans and hangs out basically. All of, all of this stuff is like obviously was happening pre-COVID so you know now obviously the 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 landscape for for tourism changed like changed quite substantially. I mean, what are your thoughts about that, Lee? I mean, do you think like this? Uh, I mean, where, where to from now? I guess in a sort of post-COVID future, in, in terms of like tourism and other tourism, especially with regards to India. What do you think? Yeah, it's really interesting. I don't know. Some some places are going to suffer really really heavily, but other places just have such a reputation to them that I think. You know, not a lot is going to change. The places can't survive without the tourism and they're highly, highly sought after, you know, on lots of travelers' bucket lists, things like that. I mean, right now in Hampi, there's still apparently thousands of visitors um, visiting the ruins every day. I don't even know how that's possible, where those travelers are coming from. But the attractions are still there and people are still trying to get to them as much as possible. So... I think you know some of the some other places are going to find it really really hard while some places are just going to breeze through it and kind of come out the other side well, what are you the same. what do you think what's what what are what are some ideas i mean what would you do or what would be some sort of like some things you could do to mitigate some of those over tourism factors particularly in india because i mean like it's like we mentioned yeah. at the top of the show like i've been there and I went there 10 years ago. And to be honest, I didn't really feel like over-tourism was a thing. Um, and this is obviously a little, I mean, social media had just come out. There was no Instagram at that point. But I also think like having those Instagram, having those sort of platforms where you're able to like really easily push and, and um, promote like kind of off the beaten tracks sort of the places. Like now, back then it wasn't, it was like, a, you had to kind of try a little bit harder. You know, you basically had to get like a Lonely Planet or something yeah. like that. And, and there was no like Wi-Fi. It was only like free Wi-Fi at the local McDonald's or something like that. But like, what do you see happening? What 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 do you think would happen or can happen in the future in order to, in, in order to sort of like stop over tourism so much? I'd like to see uh, travelers taking a little bit more responsibility in uh, some places and you know, the, the key always is education. You know, if the locals know how to look after their backyard, they'll do it. Um, and I don't know, know if, if trailers are the key to that, but in some places, like, for example, up north in India, in Dharamshala, is where the uh, um, Dalai Lama lives in exile. And he has a little town there called McLeod Ganj, and it's basically the Tibetan government in in uh, exile, live there. And it's a major tourist attraction. People from all over the world come there for spiritual teachings and all this stuff. And there's a lot of trash there. It's a beautiful place. It's in the Himalayan mountains, but there's plastic absolutely everywhere you go. And that's because of how popular it is. It's a hundred percent because of, of, uh, of the things to see there that, that travelers want to see. Uh, and you know, it's such a beautiful place. People go there year after year and they check into the same hotels and they form great relationships with the locals that live there. So why not take that to the next step and take a bit of responsibility, um, you know, and try and formulate education programs, try and formulate co-ops, get the locals together 
to do things like um, rubbish collection and stuff like that. It's really tricky in India because if you want to do anything, you have to go through the, the diplomatic, you know, the bureaucratic red tape that covers everything. But I don't know if that's the solution. Again, I just think that it would be nice to see a bit more responsibility, especially from those kind of um, the hardcore spiritual travelers, you know, who go to these places over and over again and then they recommend those places to their friends, but they just keep getting dirtier and dirtier and more and more trashed and uh, less and less authentic, uh, you know, and that, that degrades from your experience of going there in the first place. Do you think some what level is, of... Oh, sorry, go, Mike. What does authentic mean for you, Lee? Like, I guess where, you know, you don't have a McDonald's on the corner because whiteys are going there all the time. Um, it's really hard. It's really hard, especially in a place like India that's so multicultural and so diverse. You can't pin down what, what you know, even the local dialect is supposed to be. There's three or four different dialects. You can't even pin down what, what the, the local food traditions are. It's all mixed up in together. So it's really hard. But I think you, you kind of get a feel for it when you go to a place. You kind of get a feel for how authentic it is. How much are, are the locals on the street trying to sell me some cheap? Chinese stuff just because I'm, you know, traveling from a Western country uh, and you kind of gauge it and you kind of get a feel for, for the authenticity of place, but it's really hard to, to pin down. And it's not really something that you should go around saying, Oh, this is authentic. And this is not, you know, yeah, so I don't want to seem like I'm the yeah. kind of guy that can, can say for sure what's right and what's not right. But you, you see tourists coming to a place and you see the, the piles of plastic building up around it. You see the, the locals changing some of their behavior and maybe changing the menus in the restaurants to accommodate to the, you know, the three eyes again, the Indian, Italian and Israeli food. Um, well, I mean, they, they deserve an opportunity if they wish to. to do that's that, right. Yeah. That's right. And in Humpy, you've got some great little villages that, you know, the locals got together and realized that selling the same crap that you can buy everywhere else on the tourist trail in India is not the way forward. And they just to preserve the authenticity of their village. They decided to, um, you know, make efforts to preserve local traditions and food styles and languages so that tourists come and they want to learn that stuff. They want to learn how to cook a traditional whatever dish mm. and they want to learn some of the local language and they want to see stuff through the eyes of local guides, you know, not just some schmuck who makes his way from Mumbai here once a year so that he, cause he knows the tourists are there to make the money. Well, I mean, isn't like, isn't the key word kind of like sustainability? Yeah, like, that, eh? <laughs> mm. like, I mean, if you have, I mean, whether it's authentic or not, because I mean, that's really, in the eye of the beholder, but if it's like if it's quote unquote inauthentic, then it's gonna drag less tourists over because we'll be like, oh man, I went there. There's just like some somebody trying to sell me some cheap crap from China or something like that, or like like the environment needs to be you know needs to be looked after because otherwise you know we might end up with you know problems with I don't know drought or whatever, and that might bring less tourists, etc. But like across the board, isn't sustainability kind of like like the key thing to drive that? Because if you can't, if you don't do, if there's no sustainability with regards to like the environment or like tourist numbers or what have you, um, then you're just gonna kind of drive like what bring people to your place in the first place. Like, 
you know, into the ground because it's just, it's not going to exist in the same way that it, it did. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I think it is changing. I think even just in the, the few years that I was in Humpy and came back again, I saw less people catering to the, uh, you know, psychedelic trance um, crowds and the party crowds. I think that people are probably with the help of the internet becoming a little bit more conscious of what they do when they go traveling and, you know, off, off the beaten path things that you can do. So it's not everybody just checking the list off the lonely planet anymore. People are expanding their horizons a little uh, and, you know, uh, wanting to eat the local food as well, instead of just the same thing. You're always going to have both. You're always going to have people that just want to go and sit on their ass and do nothing for a weekend and smoke some good hash and eat pizza. And, you know, that's cool as well. You're still bringing money to the local economy. So you can't, you can't discredit that. But I do sure. think that I've seen a little bit of a change in people going for, for trekking or for cycling more than they were, you know, going before and stuff like that, which is positive. It's good to see. Lee, that was a great, that was a great story, man. Like, really enjoy today. I don't know. Pretty, pretty, pretty terrifying. Yeah, it was, it was pretty wild at the time. We had a good laugh about it afterwards, but it was all a bit wild at the time. And, you know, it was a really cool experience. Um, we felt like we really bonded with the locals and we really got to see, see that place like not a lot of people do get to see it. And, you know, millions of people go to Humpy every year. And when it flooded, we were the only white people in the village, basically. It was like us and there was this other one uh, random German guy there so we were the only tourists in the village. So it was really cool. We got to experience it like not a lot of people do. Mike, any last thoughts? Um, I will see you all next week. That's, that's a good sign. my a, show. That's a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, just before we, before we bail out, if anybody's got any travel stories, I'd love to hear from you. Um, anything at all. Like... A little moment could be like a two-day monsooning flooding thing or like just some random quirky little thing that you ran into along the way we'd love to hear from you potentially come on the podcast um but from us i think that's i think that's everything bye guys thanks guys